Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Mazars Let's Talk podcast. In Let's Talk With, leaders from across the academic, business and policy spectrum share their views and expertise on the issues shaping our world and what they mean for business. Hello, I'm Rudy Lang, a partner at Mazar and your host of Let's Talk With. In my line of work, I'm fortunate to speak quite regularly to leaders in their field. These conversations provide a rich source of new ideas and insight, and sometimes they lead to change in how we do business. We can learn from those who offer different perspectives, and my goal with this podcast series is to provide introductions to new ideas, and I hope to stimulate your thinking around how we understand some of the most pressing global issues. My guest today is Rana Mitter. Rana is Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford. He is also a Fellow of the British Academy and an Officer of the Order of the British Empire. He has commented on Asia for many media outlets and is frequent presenter of Free Thinking on BBC's Radio 3. Hi Rana, good to have you here today and I hope I did you justice with my introduction. Thanks Rudy and I think you were probably far too generous in your introduction to me but it's very nice to be here and to be in conversation on China and geopolitical matters so I'm looking forward to that. Thank you Rana. Rana, you, you're author of several books including A Forgotten Ally, China's World War II 1937 to 1945, named the book of the year in The Economist and Financial Times. And you just launched a new book, China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. You write on your university website that in order to understand China's present, you need to understand its past. Um, how does your book reflect this statement? Thanks, Rudy. Well, yes, I do very much believe that with China, perhaps even more than some other countries, if you don't have some idea of how the Chinese see their own past, both the recent past and ancient past, then a lot of the references, a lot of the allusions that they will make in even everyday conversation and assumptions can be missed. The book, which you've been kind enough to mention, that just came out a few weeks ago, China's Good War, uh, How World War II is shaping a new nationalism, is based on trying to explain the importance of one particular event in recent Chinese history. And it's an event which I suspect that most people listening to this podcast in the Western world will know plenty about, and that's the Second World War, perhaps the single most you know, transformative historical experience of the last century. And yet China's presence in that war is something that is often either very little understood or not understood at all. And in the book, I make the argument that by knowing more about what China did during World War II and why it matters so much to China today, you understand a very great deal about the wider and incredibly important question of national identity. So just to explain briefly why I think that it's such an important factor in shaping China today, you know, if you turn on the television, if you turned it on during the summer of this year, 2020, the most watched TV show in China, Autumn Cicada, Chiltern, uh, is set in World War II in Hong Kong in 1941, just after Pearl Harbor. If you went to the theater, went to the cinema in China, admittedly one of the few countries in the world where you could go to the cinema this year, World War II was top of the box office, the movie The 800, about a battalion of Chinese soldiers fighting the Japanese. And if you were going away from popular culture to the more rarefied areas of international diplomacy, well, I was lucky enough just before lockdown to visit the uh, Munich Security Conference, uh, where a lot of geopolitical issues are discussed. Right there, 
The opening salvo from Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi was to point out to the assembled company, including the then U.S. Defense Secretary, Mark Esper, that China was not just a signatory to the UN Charter in 1945, but actually was the first signatory to the Charter in terms of place on the on the paper. In other words, China today is claiming ownership, not just of its own experience in World War II, but of the world that was created afterwards, which America has for so long claimed was its own creation. I mean, Dean Acheson, the US Secretary of State under Harry Truman, literally called his memoirs present at the creation of that new world. Now the Chinese are getting on the act and saying, we were in World War II as well. We fought, we died, we own this world as well. So World War II, 70 years and plus in the past, is very much part of China's current sense of identity. As a matter of fact, I mean, is it fair to say that in the past, China didn't speak too much about World War II or thought rather as a matter you better forget about it? And 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 why has this changed now? And my feeling is China is almost now celebrating its role during World War II. One of the most curious things about China's World War II experience is, first of all, that the details don't tend to be well known in the Western world. But second, that even the Chinese themselves, as you pointed out, Rudy, didn't talk about it for many, many decades. We don't have time, unfortunately, perhaps, to go into huge detail about the experience of World War II in China. But let me just give you two or three bullet points, because I think they make clear what a titanic, what a massive struggle it was for China and why it deserves to be remembered actually is a very integral part of that much better known story of the Second World War. We should remember, first of all, that China was the allied power, and it was an allied power, that fought longer than any other, longer than the Soviet Union, longer than Britain, longer than the US, from 1937, when war broke out near Beijing, until 1945. During that time, although figures are still in some ways being being compiled, more than 10 million Chinese died from various causes. Over 80 million became refugees in their own country. Some assessments say even 100 million, huge numbers. And not incidentally, the Chinese insistence, both the Chinese nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese communists under Mao Zedong, became very famous as Chairman Mao, fought back against the Japanese for four and a half years until Pearl Harbor when the Americans and British came in, holding down over 600,000 Japanese troops. So let's not kid ourselves. The Chinese contribution in World War II was actually pretty significant. Without that contribution, the whole history of the global war, not just the Asian war, would have been different. And yet we don't know very much about this story. One reason is because, you know, until recently, the West hasn't, I think, thought that much about China. And I think we'll get back to that wider subject in our conversation. But just on the Chinese side, it's worth noting that very soon after 1945, after the end of World War II, China was plunged into a horrific civil war in which the two wartime allies, the nationalists and the communists, turned on each other, fought each other. Eventually, as I think most people know, the communists won, took over, they're still there. The nationalists fled to the island of Taiwan. And as a result, Mao's China, for more than a quarter of a century, would allow almost nothing to be said on the mainland that was in any way positive about uh, the nationalist Chinese contribution to World War Two, uh, in other words, the fact that they had fought most of the major battles, for instance. And that only changed after Mao's death in the late 70s, early 80s, when for a variety of reasons, including the desire to reunify with Taiwan and desire to create a new, more patriotic identity that went across class struggle boundaries, that finally China, you know, 30, 40 years after the event, started on the mainland to talk in a broader and more complete way about that World War II experience, remembering all those horrific statistics that I, I gave you at the beginning 
finally made public, finally discussed in a much more open way for the first time. And in one way or another, they really haven't stopped doing that since. The last 20 or 30 years have been marked in China by a continual conversation, debate, argument, whatever you want to call it, about the meaning of World War II for shaping China today. It's just not an argument that foreigners tend to pick up on very much. Mm. Your book is about Chinese newfound nationalism. And and I would like to ask a, a few questions around that. And I want to start with something really of today's world almost, the pandemic. I think the Chinese government have quite extensively used the pandemic to promulgate state stage nationalism, rightly or wrongly. I don't like the word Cold War too, too much in this context, but the word has been used um, to describe the trade tensions between the US and China. And it's now used uh, for the technology developments. But couldn't the same also be said about COVID-19? And hasn't COVID-19 been used as a vehicle to propel nationalism? It's a very astute point. And I think when we talk about Chinese nationalism, and goodness knows I put it in the title of my book, so you know I have to you know, say that it's, it's up front there. Um, we mean at least two different things. And I think it's important to differentiate them and understand the different significance of them. One is the idea of nationalism as an ideology of the nation state. And China is a country that, unlike many others, has been struggling for more than 100 years to actually form itself as a nation state. It was a you know, pre-modern empire for millennia, you know, under the, the emperors. And by the late 19th century and then the early 20th, when it turned into a republic, it started a sort of journey of self-discovery that still, in a sense, hasn't ended. And I think understanding things like the experience of recent wars, uh, not just World War II, but also the Korean War, um, the Opium Wars of the mid-19th century, is one of a whole set of parts, along with a concentration on traditional Chinese philosophy, such as Confucius, uh, a story about economics, you know, economic growth can also be a nationalistic story, and in China it certainly, it certainly is. And also the idea of itself as a sort of nationalist internationalist, a nation state that leads the global south, you know, with, through its Belt and Road Initiative. All of these are stories that China tells about itself and to the world, And they're not necessarily, I think, um, destructive or, or harmful ones. It's fine, I think, to discover the heritage of Confucius, for instance. But on the other hand, when people talk about nationalism, they're often thinking of the much less attractive side of China's nation state identity building, and that is xenophobia and anti-foreignism. And we have to say that that is also part of the mixture and a very problematic one. During the COVID pandemic, as you've mentioned, there was far too much of the rest of the world asking sometimes I think some quite legitimate questions about the origins of COVID and, you know, where China should be more forthcoming with information. And many of these approaches were essentially pushed back very, very confrontationally by Chinese foreign ministry spokespeople or by others involved with the, the state. And that's the kind of um, diplomacy. It's sometimes nicknamed uh, Wolf Warrior, Jan uh, Lang, uh, after a famous uh, rather macho movie of 2015 which involved fewer diplomats and more guerrilla-type special forces, I, I have to say, um, in which basically you never, you never explain, you just basically hit back when someone uh, confronts you. I think that kind of diplomacy is not going to be very productive or very practical for China over the long uh, term. And I think you can also even tell that now there are voices in China, some of whom have spoken up, saying they think this very confrontational sort of diplomacy has actually held China's cause back. So I think right now, in late 2020, we're in a situation where China's nationalism and, it, and internationalism are in a paradoxical place, by which I mean after COVID, because 
Eventually, China actually managed to clamp down pretty successfully on the virus. At home, at least in most of China, there is a quite favorable view of the way in which the state has dealt with it. But internationally, China's yeah. reputation in all international surveys is much lower than it was mm -hmm. a year ago. Highly interesting. I, I will come back to one of the aspects uh, in a moment. I mean, China has, I think, undoubtedly emerged uh, as an economic superpower um, following reforms introduced in the late 1970s. And I understand the Chinese people must be hugely proud. There must be national pride almost of what they have achieved um, collectively. And, and that was potentially even, even amplified by a, by a sense of Western humiliation. And this new assertiveness or, or even aggression we see in um, around territorial claims in the South Chinese Sea. Is, is that a re reaction to that? I think it is a key factor in understanding why Chinese rhetoric is so often, you know, very, very confrontational. And, you know, I think should be called out on that those grounds. I don't think it's acceptable, but I think it is sometimes explicable because China is a country, unlike many other more stable ones, that have spent, has spent a century either suffering from civil war or suffering from foreign invasion. And you use this phrase, which I'll, I'll pick up, it's, it's a very useful phrase, and it was invented by the Chinese themselves, the idea that China was going through what ultimately became known as a century of national humiliation, by mm -hmm. water, which really dates from the Opium Wars of the 1840s and the handover of Hong Kong in 1842 to the final ending of those unequal treaties, as they were called, in 1943. So technically 101 years of... of um, uh, humiliation. It's also worth noting that formally they ended not under Chairman Mao and the communists, but under Chiang Kai-shek during the Second World War. Another reason why I think the Second World War idea should be better understood in taking account of China uh, than, it, than it sometimes is. But I think this very strong sense that China is a country that feels defensive, has a strong sense of national pride, and it reacts very fast and often very, very brutally in its language when it feels that it's being picked on, comes in part from that feeling that the humiliation has never really gone away. And even now, you'll hear from at least some Chinese actors, you know, officials, um, leaders, think tankers, they will point to China's achievements, uh, you know, the bringing millions of people out of poverty, um, huge amounts of investment it's made through Belt and Road around the rest of the world, um, its role in creating issue, uh, institutions like the new RCEP, the Regional Common Economic Partnership, which has been signed in East Asia, and say, why doesn't China get more credit for this? I wanted to, to interfere and ask, ask you in this context, I mean, uh, China is self-aware of, of, of its influence, of its economic power, but is, is China carrying its international weight? Uh, is, is it doing enough for international institutions or is there more claim than reality? I would say that China is carrying out a kind of Schrodinger's internationalism. It's both within the international system and outside it at the same time. And it basically switch modes when it's most useful for it to do so. So China can and does point out a whole variety of things that are true uh, of China and have not been said true, let's say, of the United States, particularly during the administration of, of Donald J. Trump. You know, Donald J. Trump pulled the US out of the Paris Climate Accords, the World Health, Organi uh, well, World Health Organization, a whole variety of other international institutions, whereas China stayed a very central member of those and indeed ended up having very great influence in them uh, as well. And on that front, they would also point out to issues, we just mentioned the, the RCEP trade agreement just signed off 
a few weeks ago. Um, this is a set of uh, institutions, institutional changes that show that China is perfectly capable of using the system as it is and even taking a leadership role. The problem is that in a whole variety of areas, China either doesn't want to acknowledge that the package contains some other things which China finds more awkward, or it seeks to change those elements. So human rights is the obvious one. And what China would and does say is that we believe that economic collective rights are more important than individual yeah. civil liberties. And then the rest of the world comes back and says, well, we believe they're both important. And China, you know, then basically has its back against the wall on that issue and refuses to, uh, to accept that. So I would say that it is in the international system and makes a great deal of use of it, but it's not pulling its weight, as you put it, in certain areas where essentially value systems around the world don't match what China finds convenient. I would like to change topics just a little bit. One belt, one road. Uh, I think another manifestation of China's growing influence in the world, um, <laughs> my question is rather, well, obscure maybe, is how does it work in reality? Do I, do I need to imagine there are some clever guys sitting somewhere in an office in, in, in Beijing and pull it all together and come up with a plan? Or is it a bit more... Um, complex or actually or, or diffuse? It's definitely not one or three guys sitting in a room in Beijing pushing buttons. It's sometimes portrayed in a slightly overly hysterical view of, of some Western commentators. I would say if I may give a little plug actually for one of my students, Ike Freiman, who's just got a book coming out with Harvard Press uh, next year called One Belt, One Road, which is a very detailed, nuanced and thoughtful account of what the whole system really means. And get your pre-orders in now, I'd say, because it's, it's really very, very, it's, 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 it's very, it's very good. Uh, and I don't get any royalties from, from that. Um, but the The basic answer I give you, Rudy, is that One Belt, One Road actually is not one system, but a whole variety of things that are patchworked together, often in a rather confused way. So some things are things that existed anyway, like the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. It's been underway for ages, and it's got a nice new coat of paint calling it, that's part of the Belt and Road. Other elements are newer, including basically the fact that there was a large amount of um, FDI waiting to be reallocated and which could be placed in a whole variety of, uh, of different enterprises. But even there, there are difficulties because actually people, people I think have often got it the wrong way around. A lot of people say, um, in some cases, you know, is this China creating a new empire? Actually, I would say that for investors, one of the more interesting questions I've is, is this China putting its money in a whole bunch of really dubious investments because nobody else wants to actually put their money there? And in many cases, including you know various ports and power plants and so forth, I think they are funding things that probably nobody else much would pay for. This is not being done centrally from Beijing. It's being done in a kind of combination of funding from various private sector actors in China, often based provincially rather than nationally, sometimes in competition with each other, and also with basically loans being um, put out by two or three of the major Chinese development banks, the China Import Export Bank, mm -hmm. China Development mm -hmm. Bank, these sorts of, of institutions. So while I think it's fair to see it as a direction of travel and an idea The idea that it is a fully worked through integrated system is a very long way from the reality. Yeah. It's also more focused on, they're not trying to conquer the US or Western Europe. I mean, it's more Latin America or South America and Africa. Or what is your view on that one, Rana? Belt and Road, and actually more broadly, Chinese efforts to seek geopolitical influence are much more concentrated on uh, what you might call 
new spaces and new markets. Uh, in other words, yes, of course, they've got an influence. Uh, so they've got an interest in trying to influence Western Europe and Australia and uh, North America. And quite often that happens through a combination of sweet talk and pretty savage talk. I mean, again, we're thinking about the way in which China has been bashing Australia in, in recent uh, weeks and months, uh, which has not been attractive to, to see. But I think in the most part, looking at the medium to long term, where China sees opportunities is in basically creating a sort of path dependency in an area like technology. So, for instance, the chances that Huawei, by now a very famous company, which nobody had heard of three years ago, and now it's one of the most famous companies in the world for not always the best reasons, the chances that it's going to have much footprint in Northwest Europe or in North America, I think, is zero to you know low to zero at the, at the moment. Southern Europe, I think, maybe maybe different, but that's a different question. But the likelihood that actually Huawei, which is heavily state subsidized and therefore cheap and effective and works well, getting a serious foothold in the tech ecology being built in Latin America, in Southeast Asia, in Africa, is I think much more likely. And in that context, you can see that for the medium to long term, there is a set of decisions, there are a set of decisions being made through decisions like that one, you know, how you provide the tech infrastructure that can then create markets that may become more beholden to China. So I think that that's the medium term plan. Rana, in the past, as an emerging market, it was, I think, understandable that China did not invite open access to, to its market. But China's position has changed so much. How can this play out in the future? Well, I said earlier that uh, China is kind of a Schrodinger actor in the international community. It's both inside and outside the international system. And this is also true, actually, for international uh, trade institutions and market economies. China is a market economy when it wants to be, and it's not when it's, it's a developing economy when it chooses to be. So <laughs> depending who you're talking to, you know, at one point, China gets very, very incensed with the European Union for not considering China to be a market economy. On the other hand, when China doesn't like the way that certain demands are going for opening its own markets, it tends to come back on the argument that it's still a developing country and has a long way to go. And I think this contradiction is becoming increasingly less tolerated by the uh, certainly the developed world, which I think feels that it's offered China a lot of opportunities and hasn't been fully reciprocated. So I would expect to see the arguments moving, actually even under the Biden administration, away from the idea that just opening markets in a kind of classic free market sense is enough, and instead wanting to see certain reforms and certain opening of market as a specific reciprocal um, request or demand in return for access to certain markets in the, in the Western world. So, you know, in that particular sense, I would say that certainly reform of China's still very powerful state-owned enterprises, which have, you know, been supposedly due for reform for decades, but never really get reformed, will become much more important in the way that I think the West talks about um, those, those issues. Of course, it will be easier to do that if we're returning to a presidency under Joe Biden, where, for instance, the US is not one of the primary actors trying to destroy the uh, appellate system of the WTO, or in other words, basically moving towards protectionist free trade of it, protectionist trade of its own. That makes it much more straightforward to be able to talk to China, because at the moment, of course, China can argue that while it's behaving in ways that don't fit with free market uh, models, so is the US and the EU and various other actors too. Well, maybe maybe the rhetorics will change a little bit uh, with the new president in office uh, and maybe the relationships to international um, organizations um, and to the um, allies in Europe may change a little bit. But the language and the broad trends in relation to China are unlikely to change. And China is 
probably not changing that much, or do you have a different view? Oh, no, I think we'll expect quite a lot of change in the next few years. I mean, essentially, most major economies in the world, which would certainly include the US and China, but also the, the EU to some extent, but certainly China and the US are both going to pursue, relatively speaking, much more protectionist policy policies of their own. And with Biden, we can see that you know, having seen that he's got his wafer thin majorities in the Midwest, he's not going to want to let go of those particular voting blocks or a successor if he doesn't run, run again. But in the case of China, specifically, it's very clear from what the five year plan that's being essentially put through the system now is going to going to do. They're arguing for a system which is now officially being termed dual circulation, which is an argument that essentially China should pursue two separate but related economic circuits, you might say, or circulations, as they, as they put it. One of which is a domestic-driven circulation in which lots of production is indigenized, there's much more domestic consumption, and another one which is about global trade. Of course, the point of many very, uh, I think, informed economic observers is that actually this isn't a combination that's possible over the long term. Having a kind of thriving um, global trading position while keeping your own domestic market entirely operating under or largely working under a system of self-reliance isn't feasible to uh, to do. And since there are many aspects that you can see of what China's doing, like a fast-growing trade surplus, as opposed to the kind of trade deficit you'd expect if they were genuinely moving towards a more consumer-based economy, uh, it's clear that there is still an awful lot of argumentation going on about economics in China, a lot of which has to do about how protectionist they can be and where perhaps political gestures are taking priority over economic realities. Although we also know from our own societies that even Western countries are not immune from making those sorts of choices sometimes as well. And I know your your parents moved from uh, in, the, in the 1960s to the UK, so you, you still have um, close ties, I'm inclined to say, to uh, India, and you're an insider. Uh, The, the Chinese border with India, I think, is some 2,000 miles long. And, and, and the June clash in the Galwan Valley between China and India was violent. Uh, in, in this context, the defense collaboration between India and the US has intensified, uh, mainly what some call Chinese imperial expansionism. Um, this is rather tricky also for the incoming uh, US um, president, To, to navigate and, and how will China respond in the future? I think the question of how security and trade issues interact with each other in the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific, actually, as the Americans have, have come to call it recently, um, is going to be a fascinating and I think not straightforward set of, uh, of choices in the near future. So consider within the year 2020, within just the last few months that we've been talking about, on the one hand, exactly as you said, there was a savage clash, a really deadly clash in Galwan. Um, by the way, there's been a further follow-up, and if you, people want to Google online, that at least one Chinese scholar has argued that, in fact, the Chinese were using secret microwave weapons on the, the Himalayas. Now, whether <laughs> there's any proof for this, we, we do not know, but it's been causing a certain amount of excitement on defense Twitter recently about whether this could really be, be true. But, you know, the point is that China and India are clearly in confrontation there in some ways. And there's been more talk, as you say, of the Quad United States, India, Japan, Australia getting together and forming some kind of um, defense alliance that might at least try and uh, engage with the question of, of protecting themselves against China. But at the same time, as we've mentioned, um, within the last few weeks, um, RCEP has been signed off, a major free trade agreement in the region in which Japan and Australia and China 
are all signatories together and they're going to have to cooperate with each other on this free trade agreement. India actually didn't sign it, but not for any reasons to do with defence or security, because it doesn't want to open up its home markets to too much competition. So it's mm. an entirely economic argument. Yeah. Now, both these things have been true at the same time within four months of each other. And I think that they give you an indication of how complex that dance between economics and security and geopolitics has been and will continue to be for years and probably decades to come in the Indo-Pacific region. Particularly Piquant, since of course that is a region with, if you count the whole, you know, area, something like, um, you know, over 50% of the world's population and something like possibly close to 75% of the world's economic activity. My my last question, uh, Rana, is actually a, a question I steal um, from an interview you conducted the other day with um, Ai Wei and Sophie Richardson. And and the question actually was, what what is China going to be like in 20 years' time? Well, it was extremely interesting to have a conversation with, you know, the great exiled Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, who, you know, has a fairly bleak view of the way that things in yeah. China is going. So his vision of that question was, was a fairly depressing one in some ways. I'll try and perhaps offer a bit more optimism, I think, in some ways. On the one hand, I think that it is unlikely that in the short term, you know, the next three, four, five years, that China is going to become much more liberal. I think under current leadership, it's likely to continue to constrain freedoms in areas like academia, media, um, you know, law and, and so forth. And we have to realize that the rest of the world has to decide where it wants to call that out and where it's going to have to engage with it. It's not always an easy choice. But I think over time, I think that as China becomes, it is already doing, a country that's much more interested in becoming a high value economy, keeping smart people and talent on the end of a very short leash for too long, I think is going to be difficult for the state. I mean, it's all very nice to basically say to people, look, you're getting these lifestyles, you're getting, you know, ever rising income, take the money and be happy. And for a while, actually, that works with an awful lot of people. There's no denying it. But I think over time, what the experience of the United States has shown is that people being freer to basically raise a fuss and actually decide that maybe they don't like the way things are done and to talk about it is going to become more important to people. So I do not see that as a, a prospect for the very immediate future. It would be, I think, just mistaken analytically to see that in the short term. But over the medium to longer term, actually, I would expect to see that kind of perhaps more hopeful change. I say hopeful, assuming a liberal future is more hopeful, but I think it is more, more hopeful uh, in China. And China has a very long standing and actually very attractive tradition of liberal thought within its own traditions too. As you know, we uh, uh, we have seen over many parts of the uh, of the last few hundred years of its history. So I think there's no reason why its indigenous resources, philosophical and otherwise, cannot emerge and put that case forward as well. Thank you very much for um, the conversation today and your um, insightful answers. Thanks very much, Rudy. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk, a podcast from Mazars. If you have enjoyed this, you can find more by searching Mazars Let's Talk.